Greetings everyone, my name is Julie Masters and welcome to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers, or in the case of today, experts in influence, to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. Now in the last episode of Inside Influence, which strangely enough for us, usually we come out every every two weeks, the last episode was actually just last week, where I spoke to the incredible Dr. Christy Goodwin, children's technology and development expert, speaker, author, and parent, about what she is calling the digital dilemma. We unlocked the, the challenges faced by parents, leaders, and teachers in influencing young people in a digital age. In an age where digital devices increasingly and soon literally are being woven into the fabric, into every fabric of our environment. Now that particular episode was was full of game-changing information for me as a current parent, as a leader of, of, of younger generations and as somebody who is literally about to explode with, with another human life any day now. And... And that is why today's episode is with you. It's the first time we've ever done a bonus episode. It's the first time we've ever done a part two. And I really believe, and the team within Inside Influence really believed that this particular topic of conversation was both timely and important enough to put a part two together. Not only that, but the conversation was fascinating enough to warrant it. For those of you who missed last week's conversation, I, I would recommend downloading part one. It's not essential, but it will help be helpful in giving you some background context to Christie's work. However, if you did miss it, we, we covered everything from infobesity to techno tantrums, brain science to boundary setting. And Christie very generously offered up a toolkit of proven parent strategies. <laughs> strategies that have literally been war zone tested in the home to manage your child's relationship to digital devices. 100% guilt free. We explored one of the most profoundly influential positions we will ever hold as a human being. And that is the influence we have as parents, as mentors, as leaders in helping a new generation make healthy choices. In particular, um, and one that is huge for me at the moment around what and who they allow into their world and in what context and where. As I mentioned in in the first episode, this used to be as simple as closing the front door to our homes. You know, you would finish school, you would head home, you'd forget about it for the rest of the day or if it did enter into your mind, they were memories. It wasn't an ongoing barrage of information. Whereas now that world... All its opinions, personalities, and messages, they follow us home in the form of digital devices. And being able to to control that relationship, being able to set a healthy boundary in that relationship to the information that hits us on a 24-7 cycle, again, I believe to be one of the keys to raising a generation of influential, empowered, and resilient young people. So enough from me. In part two, we discuss the following. The right and the wrong environments for digital devices. How to engage young people, in particular young children, 
in conversations about digital safety and about digital boundaries. Why technology can, in fact, support our relationships. This was a big aha moment for me, but it should never, ever supersede them. How to manage the minefield of early exposure to sexuality, body image norms or apparent norms, another conversation, and exposure to porn. Now, this one I know is on the mind of a lot of parents right now, in particular parents of young boys. How to protect our children and the young people that we love from cyberbullying. And the most influential question for us all, are we being controlled by digital? Or is it possible to develop boundaries, healthy and resilient boundaries, where we can take the best of this new world? Because there is so much incredible, incredible stuff and opportunities that come with this new world and leave the worst outside our front doors. Now, it bears repeating, in the words of Dr. Christie herself, these are 100% guilt-free conversations. Feeling guilty about our relationship to technology, which is something that I do regularly, it doesn't help anyone. It's a waste of energy. It's going to keep us all further stuck in the dark, afraid to have conversations out loud about how we manage this within our homes, within our offices, within our own pockets, where our iPhones live. It's just not going to help. And if we're going to navigate this new world in a world where none of us know the rules, we are going to need to talk. So on that note, for the second time in two weeks, grab a cup of tea, a bar of dark chocolate or your running shoes, whatever, whatever floats your boat and enjoy part two in my conversation with the absolutely amazing Dr. Christy Goodwin. I want to pick back up on the being present part because I think that that in talking to parents and in being a parent that is one that is ongoing that desire to be present the um the pull whatever it happens to be of not being present and I'm going to just take the side of the parent for for a second and that could just be a world of excuses from me I know and again reading your work that there have been studies that found, you know, 54% of kids think their parents spend too much time on their devices and feel unimportant when their parents use their phones during things like sports carnivals or when they're, they're outside playing or when they're doing something where they're hoping. And I remember that feeling where you're hoping, you know, you're looking up to see if your parent's watching you. Yeah. It, did you, like, did you, and my daughter's still young enough to go, see that mummy? You see that? You see, watch me, mummy, watch me. And so when they look up and you're on your iPhone, they've been playing for an hour, they haven't looked at you once, but the one time when they look. Now you may you have made a valid point that now the very presence of technology, the very presence of the internet means that we're able to attend things that we possibly weren't even able to attend before. We have far more flexible working practices. You can be at a carnival you might not even have been able to be at before. But that has the negative consequence of the fact that the expectation is still that you are connected and online. What times should be phones down time? Mm. What times, again, I know you hate the word should. How do you manage that expectation either with your child or with your employer or with anybody else in the world around those sacred spaces? Are there any guidelines? And if there's not... What are your experiences just as a parent 
on that topic? Look, I wrestle with this personally and I'm, I often have friends look to me for the solution and I don't have it. I'm really transparent saying I succumb to the screen as much as everybody else. Um, one of the things I will say in our defence too, my mum and I had a conversation around this recently, is she said, when you were growing up, I read magazines while you were present and I didn't feel guilty. I'd pull out my, she used to be an avid reader of Danielle Steele novels and she said, I used to escape into a Danielle Steele book while you were all playing in on the floor and I did not have one pang of guilt. And it's really interesting that nuanced difference is it because it's a different media that we're automatically assuming that what we're doing on a phone is non-productive, you know, leisure pursuits that we're all just scrolling through social media and it's not necessarily the case. Um, so I think we need to be careful about again being too harsh on ourselves um my other concern and and this is where I, you know you can see i'm I don't have a very clear argument here i battle with this as well is that we don't um we are using these devices sometimes for parents if i'm really honest we use them as an escapism tool you know if i'm really honest there are parts of parenting that are very mundane and very monotonous and our phones give us that escapism that we are craving the other thing our phones give us um, one of our fundamental human psychological drivers is the need for connection we want we are hardwired for relational connection social media responding to emails intracommunication boards on our uh, platforms at work cater for that need for us to connect and again as parents particularly if you are living in a associate sorry a geographically isolated area or if you're a parent of a very young child we know how ostracizing and isolating it can be so this is why we're often gravitating again if we can understand why we are reaching for our phones and understanding those behaviors that are driving that we can I think be a little bit more more gentle on ourselves when it comes to what I what we've tried to and again I amplify exemplify that word try we carve out what I recommend families do is establish no-go tech zones and some of the ones that we ideally would recommend um, are meal areas we know meal areas for a couple of reasons number one the meal area is obviously a sacred time for connection and interaction developing language skills we've actually had longitudinal studies that say that the number of meals you have as a family unit can be one of the best predictors of kids academic outcomes that's how well regarded that the meal time is the third reason I say meal times is that we are seeing increasing numbers of kids presenting with not necessarily eating disorders but taste preferences and predispositions because they are constantly eating with a screen and so they're not mindfully eating so they're not wanting to try new flavors they're not wanting to you know wrestle with the tricky lamb cutlet if they're trying to watch sesame street or something on the on the 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 screen so meal areas are definitely one of them the other time obviously we've chatted at length about the bedroom I think bathrooms, it just goes without saying. Um, the other area I say is play areas. And we know for young kids that something as simple, and we often look at it as quite benign, the background TV has been shown to be distracting for kids if they're not watching it. So having you know TV playing whilst they're in close proximity. And the fifth one is cars. And I'm talking here about short distance, you know, the, the trip to pick up or the, you know, going to ballet or soccer practice. Um, I'm not talking about long distance road trips and I'm certainly not talking about interstate flights or international flights I think screen away it provides <laughs> it provides and preserves everybody's sanity 
But cars for two reasons. Number one, we know that most provisional drivers now have formed such a strong association that I get in the car and I pull out a gadget. I, I, I use some sort of screen that once they get their license, it's a near impossible habit for them to break. And you only need to look around at traffic and you notice the preponderance of not just teenagers, but adults as well, who are you know using their devices. Now, hopefully we will soon have technologies that will circumvent that from even being an option. But at this point in time, we don't. The other reason for cars is that cars are, again, another rich opportunity for conversation and dialogue. It's one of the few times in the day that your kids and teens are trapped in close proximity. And again, knowing what we know about how people like to communicate, we know boys, um, and this applies to men as well, but boys in particular and adolescent boys and girls much prefer the back of the head side-by-side conversation than they do the face-to-face conversation. I don't know if you remember Dickie Nee from Hey Hey It's Saturday, who was a character on Australian television news gone by and he just used to pop up and all you ever saw was the cap and the long hair on Dickie Nee. Our kids love Dickie Nee conversations. The car is that opportunity to engage in that 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 dialogue. It's so interesting you said that because I was talking to a mother of of teenagers and she said, you know what, she gets the most information out of her kids. The best quality conversations when she is just stood in the lounge room folding laundry doing something not being not being on a device but doing something in the background mm-hmm. then they approach with information Absolutely. but if she sits with them and attempts to get that information if she sets up conversations she gets nothing yeah. but just being in the back in the periphery of their vision doing something else then she, you know, then a connection seems to be formed and then they, they approach yeah. with, with conversation. Yeah, and as a little aside here, when I say to parents, you know, you need to be talking to your kids about cyber safety and cyber bullying and pornography and all the conversations that are tricky to have, one of the best ways to have them is going for a walk, walk along the beach or walk along the park in a cafe, not face-to-face but side-by-side and again in the car. Um, we know that as humans, boys, males in particular, love that that side-by-side conversation as opposed to face to face so it serves many purposes um, but again tapping into us being in control and using it and leveraging it the best ways we can I often feel again taking I'm just going to keep taking a parent's side here because I mean I could take both I could definitely take both but holding on to this one for a second you know I often feel sad for for my mum she was isolated geographically her family were five hours away phone calls were expensive and she's trying to figure out how to parent Mm. with no resources at all and I I look at how much I turn to how much I parent by Google how much I read your articles (laughs) how much I have two or three go-to people on the internet whose philosophies I really resonate with who I will check out have they written an article on this topic is there a podcast on this topic and it's amazing how much of a gift yeah, we talk about the gift of digital, how much it has been as a resource for parenting. And I know that you wrote um, an article, and I think it was called "Why What My Miscarriage Taught Me About My Phone, which was a beautiful, beautiful article. Thank you for, thank you for writing it just firstly. Can you talk to me about, about that, about the support that we get as parents mm. from digital devices as opposed to the demonization of of us for using them. Yes, and it's interesting. A lot of mental health researchers are actually looking at 
yes, there's the negative side, you know, social media can cause all sorts of mental health issues, but can we not leverage this as a tool that will support people? Can we use it as a platform where people can reach out and get just-in-time support? Can we use it for people who are socially or geographically isolated to get the connection that they are craving? And this is where I think we can tap into the potential of technology. I know for many parents that, that having access to instant information can be in many instances literally a lifesaver. You know, we've got pertinent information that, again, we need to be careful that we're reading trustworthy, reliable sources of information, but we've got that instant access and that's where technology can be brilliant because it can provide us with that access. It can cater for that need, as I said before, how we are biologically wired to connect. We've got mother's forums where people can seek support, again, being judicious about what we choose to you know, what platforms we choose to gravitate to and the sources we get that information from. But I think that's the real potential of the the technology is, again, if we're in control of it, if we've got boundaries around how we're using it and we are using it with a specific intention and purpose, that this can be a brilliant tool to support all sorts of, of different families. The other thing that technology does is it allows parents to provide access to it provides them with access to information that they would otherwise feel embarrassed about perhaps asking their allied health professional their gp that the the educator at childcare, so it's giving them the instant access but also in the privacy of their own home you know I feel a lot more assured asking some of those really awkward conversations as you're trying to navigate the difficulties and nuances of parenthood without the judgment of, of other people so I think there are so many benefits and again that's about using technology as the tool that it was designed to be in the first place. Can you tell me a little bit more about that that ex- that very specific experience that you were talking about and how it supported you how it supported you through it? Yes, so I had um, a network of friends and anyone who I think who has endured and experienced a miscarriage knows how difficult it is to deal with the myriad of emotions. But using my phone, I had, you know, when I was howling in the shower at three o'clock in the morning and I had exhausted my husband with his support and um, trying to help me navigate this I had a friend who was living in America and so we could we we literally would either call each other or she would send me voice memos in real time and I had that opportunity to connect with people that I otherwise wouldn't have had I not had my phone and we were doing this um, one of my friends in particular we were doing this through Facebook Messenger so again we often hear the negative aspects of Facebook but in that instance those voice memos and that communication process provided me with that just-in-time support uh, that I needed from someone who was a trusted friend. Yes, there are, you know, support and counselling services available that do often have 24-hour services, but nothing beats the connection you have, that rapport with a real person. And this is where I think we've got to be really careful is that um, we, we can't always see technology as a substitute for those real relationships. At the end of the day, we still need real connection with people. The technology can augment, it can support those relationships, but it's never going to supersede them, if that, that makes sense. So that was definitely a huge support. Uh, for me at that particular time having the ability to access online forums and again information that guided me through that that experience with other people sharing their vignettes and personal experiences was really helpful the flip side was that 
because Google algorithms carefully watch what we are doing, they had noticed that I had obviously started to Google maternity outfits. I had already Googled the hospital we were going to choose to have our baby in. Um, and so unfortunately, one of the negative aspects of that was that my Facebook and Instagram feed started to fill up with ads and just through natural algorithms, knowing what would be of interest to me in my feed um, was predominantly images, stories, advertising geared towards pregnancy. And that was a really difficult stage to try and navigate. Um, and a reminder of what I'd lost, very tangible. I, I, I have also had also been through a miscarriage this year. And one of the ways, and I think this does relate back to parenting, because again, setting our children up for how this technology works. One is it's watching you. Mm. you know, it's paying attention to everything that you're doing. And it's feeding you that information back. So there's the there's the being aware of the echo chamber of me. You're not getting a diversity of information. Mm-hmm. You're getting very targeted information. I think the other part of that experience for me was when you're Googling at 3 a.m., which we do, especially if you're in an emotional state, the stories you're getting, they tend to be bad news stories. Mm. The people that have the emotion and the time and the intensity to document their experience on the internet tend to be those that have had a bad experience. Mm -hmm. Those that, when it all worked out well, those people, they tend not to come back and update the internet. They tend to just get on with it because it, it, it worked out really well. And remembering that, that everything that's on the internet is not an accurate description of how everything plays out. It can often be more slanted towards bad news than it is towards good news, mm-hmm. more slanted towards the extremes than it is um, the average. And that was something I had to really remind myself during that experience mm-hmm. where, you know, you're, I'm Googling, what does this mean? What does that mean? What's the possible consequences of this? And everything you're getting back, I'm getting back is terrible news, terrible news stories. And just going, okay, I need to mother myself in this moment and get myself off this Mm. because it's not helpful. In this moment, it is not helpful to me. It's not being helpful to me. And sharing those experiences with our children, the moments where you have to go, this is not helpful to my state of mind. Mm. I need to remove myself. Mm. And how you do that and how you recognize when that moment has come. And that is something we find hard as adults to do and this is why I think we can really appreciate why young people and adolescents find it so hard to develop a healthy relationship with technology because we've got hindsight we've got life experience we've got the cognitive capacity we've even got that prefrontal cortex that will help us manage our impulses to make those wise you know stringent decisions whereas young people don't and so this is why you know we are seeing huge issues with cyberbullying and other uh, and other issues and why we need parents again to be that that moderator that guide that that pilot of the plane to help our kids through those turbulent times in life whether it be with a screen or without I think you know we all need to remember adolescence and and going through puberty and all those life changes are you know huge issues for all of us to deal with we've now got screens on top of that that are amplifying some of these concerns that have always been the case so I think it's about recognizing it's not all about the screen but it's about the 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 fostering of those relationships and having someone to guide us through it um 
when you were talking before about the um, uh, talking about how the, the Google algorithms and the way information is very curated, it's very personalised. This is one of the reasons why um, the distinction often I'm, I, I, the analogy I'm often given. You know, I've, we've often had parents at swimming lessons and they've read a magazine or they've read a book. And what's the difference between parents that are now sitting there with their phone? One of the reasons that we find it so hard to, to switch off is because what is coming into our feeds is so highly appealing, high, so highly um, curated to our particular interests that it's really hard to switch off. You know, it's no accident that the ads that are, are coming up or the stories are things that are really pertinent to you. Whilst you could have read a newspaper, you know, maybe you're the financial review kind of person and that's still curated to some extent to your interests. It's by nowhere near as means as, as personal as what is coming into our feeds. The other thing that happens often, um, and you're describing this, um, is that we enter something, when we use technology, we enter something called the state of insufficiency. We never, ever feel done. We never, ever feel complete. This is why, you know, that artificial state of inbox zero only ever lasts momentarily because we go to the bathroom and we come back and, again, it's no accident that the unread icon is red. Red triggers adrenaline. It's an emotional response. It's important. It's urgent. Um, but we never get that sense of being done. And this is why, you know, YouTube is problematic for our kids because there's always another personalised but clip on the right that I need to watch. Television now is 24-7 streaming and so there's never, ever a sense of being done or complete and so this is why I think all of us kids teens and adults are struggling um, and why yes the newspaper and the book would have been appealing but there was a chapter there was an, an end point to that the newspaper had a finite number of stories our digital devices there's an infinite supply of information and it is highly personalized in many instances meaning that it's so hard for all of us to switch off and I sharing that struggle with your child mm. you know you're not this mm. is difficult mum finds it difficult mm. dad finds it difficult mm. these are all the reasons that it's hard and these are the ways that we that we manage it as grown-ups this is what you need to know about it but but sharing that equal equal struggle so it's not this is all on you you're you know you're the only one that's going to struggle with this absolutely and our kids are really good at, at keeping us accountable too. So if they, you're on your phone again or just their, their subtle little comments can be enough to um, instigate us perhaps establishing some firmer boundaries around our use. I know, you know, the comment of, of my son sometimes saying, you're on your phone again, mum, or, or mummy, or, or saying to somebody, you know, his brother, or mummy's just on her phone, um, induces enough pangs of guilt for me to say perhaps I need to curb what I'm doing at this point in time. So let's talk social media. It's kind of the, the the monster on the the monster on the horizon. I often I talk to parents about social media and those who have children where it's who are old enough for it to be an issue. They kind of roll their eyes and don't ask me. I have no idea. And you ask anybody with younger children, and they would usually look at you with absolute abject terror on their face. It's. Let's start with a simple question: Is there a right age? No. Again, I'm the bearer of bad news. I haven't given you any simple solutions today. I'm not, I'm not looking for simplicity. I think that the fact that this is a complex discussion actually does it justice. Yeah. Look, many parents are under the misguided belief that 13, given that that's usually the legal age when most social media platforms say you can have registered users, is the right age. It's not based on any psychological research that says that by that age, kids are emotionally and socially, socially able to cope with the demands of social media. It's based on COPRA legislation, which is based 
basically uh, laws that say when it's legal for us to actually obtain data from kids. So that's why most of those social media platforms prescribe the age of 13. So I say to parents, use that as the sort of guideline, the, the, the landmark sort of baseline measure as to when we introduce social media. I say to parents, delay the introduction of as long as possible and base your decision knowing your child. I think every parent knows their child best. There are many adults that can't cope with the demands of social media and yet I think we're prematurely dunking kids in the digital stream before they're able to cope with it. Um, in my seminars, I often give parents the analogy, if your eight-year-old son came home and said to you, I'd like the keys to the car, I'd like to go and do burnouts – Parents would never hand over the keys to the car and give their kids burnouts. Just like if their 11-year-old daughter came home and said, I'd like a, sh like a shot of tequila with dinner tonight. How about it, Dad? Parents wouldn't do that. But we are feeling the pressure as parents. Uh, many parents tell me they feel that their child is socially ostracised if they're the only one in their peer cohort that doesn't have whatever the, the social media platform is that they're claiming that everybody in all of year four has. Um, just on that, we know that about 79% of 10 to 12-year-olds in Australia now have a social media account, whether their parents know it or not. So many parents, again, are erroneously thinking that their child does not have a, a social media account. In many instances, they have got them, them set up. This is why I say to parents, you know, as the pilot of the plane, um, one of the things, and this isn't, I don't believe, eroding their trust, is to do a random screen audit with your child. I'm not talking about sneaking in their room and, and unlocking their devices at, at night when they're not watching for two reasons. One, it will definitely compromise trust. And the other thing, the other reason that won't work is because many kids now have apps installed where when the phone is unlocked, a tool is used to silently take a photo. So it uses the built-in camera to take a photo of whoever it was that unlocked the phone uh, so that the user knows exactly who and when is unlocking phones at particular points in time. So if our kids know that we are going in and, and betraying their trust and, and snooping, which is something I definitely think we shouldn't do, um, it will backfire because what they'll end up doing is storing things in what we now call vault apps. And so kids will know mum and dad are going to snoop, they're going to check. So all of the um, nude photos, the inappropriate text messages, the social media platforms I shouldn't use, I'll tuck in a vault and all the vanilla, sunset, unicorn, rainbow, cupcake images and the nice text messages will just stay on my phone. But wouldn't you do that... I'm just I'm tapping into my inner sneaky teenager now, <laughs> and, and trust me, she was she was very <laughs> alive. Good. She was very alive and well. Um, wouldn't you just do that anyway? If you thought your parents were going to do a randomised check with you, wouldn't you just put everything in a vault anyway? Many of them do, but it's when they think that their trust has been eroded that again it drives that behaviour underground, and they're looking for apps and tools and ways to conceal what it is that they're doing. And in some instances, this is where they go to the extreme length of buying a decoy phone so that the one that mum and dad ordered is the one that is the vanilla version and all the good stuff is on the, the decoy one. So there, there are definitely ways around it. Um, and this is why I say, you know, parents need to be the pilot. We need to be not shaming and guilting our kids. We want them to use this, but we want to help them guide, guide them to use it in the best ways. So this is where when it comes circling back to our conversation about social media, it's about how do, when, when is the right age for them based on you knowing how they are coping with the demands of, of, of 
being responsible, um, how um, even in, in terms of logistics, can they manage their physical responsibilities? You know, many parents are tearing their hair out because they're spending hundreds of dollars on lost school jumpers and blazers. A smartphone in many instances costs a lot more of that and that's what kids are using to have access to social media. So delaying it as long as possible. Then when you do give them um, access or you give them consent to have access to social media, it's I think about giving it to them and again explaining your expectations, talking to them, um, getting them to realise how to use it respectfully and responsibly. It's about looking at friends' posts and, and, you know, dissecting informally, having conversations about, you know, what message do you think this sort of image would post? Um, what what sort of uh, comments are respectful? How could this person have worded this in a, in a kinder way? What would you do if someone, you know, started writing this information about you? So, again, guiding our kids through um, how to use it in the right ways, not just giving it to them and falsely thinking or hoping that they'll cope with it and figure out how to use it best. It just reminded me literally of my dad. He, he was quite early getting computers, so I would have been about 12 when a computer first because he was programming. Mm. He was very early to the programming party. And I can remember because my mum knew nothing about computers at all. And I can remember going into the, the area of the house where it was with my girlfriends at about 12, 13. So I'm 40 now. And back then it was chat rooms mm. and going into chat rooms. And then you'd get invited into a private chat room by goodness knows who. And you'd go into a private chat room and, and end up having, luckily for me, relatively naive conversations, but with your girlfriends around all, mm. all giggling, you know, what are you wearing? I'm wearing a jumper. I mean, it never got that bad. But, you know, again, realizing that they're going to know way more than you and if they know way more than you then the only way to navigate that is to have conversations mm. because you can't legislate it yeah. you can't legislate what you don't know yeah and I do say to parents like I think one of the things we can do a preventative measure is installing internet filtering tools because as a parent we have finite capacity to manage this you know I can barely manage my social media accounts I dread the day when I'm trying to manage my kids social media accounts and phone use as well I'm not in that territory yet so what I do say to parents is yes I think make your life a little bit easier install internet filtering tools that will help you restrict limit what your child can access and when and there's so many of them out there but the other critical piece is you need to be involved. You need to be talking to them. And this is not the one, one-off one conversation. This is ongoing dialogue and helping them to figure this out. Because if we don't do it, they're getting the information from their peers and they're figuring it out on the fly. And knowing what we know about the developing brain, you know, they don't have that frontal lobe developed. Many parents are horrified when I share with them. We know when that, that frontal lobe develops in males, it is the late 20s, and for females, it's early 20s. So our kids, even if they're mature, even if they have a good IQ, even if they're otherwise well-adjusted kids, they don't have the part of the brain that manages impulses. They don't have working memory. This is why they look at, it as, uh, look at us with that vague look when we've said the same instruction, morning in, morning out, for years, they don't have working memory so this is where social media can be problematic with impulse control in particular they can write things they can post things that they will later regret and what I often talk to when I talk to students themselves is talking about 
um, their digital DNA and this idea that everything that I write, post, share, comment, even if I think I've deleted it or I've put it in the trash, can be archived and it can, you know, have long-term repercussions. But as an impulsive teenager, I'm not thinking about that. And again, why I said, you know, keeping technology out of their bedrooms and minimising their use at night, what we know, again, about that prefrontal cortex, it shuts down and that, that emotional limbic brain, that amygdala turns on. So again, guiding our kids through that and our teens to use the technology in the way that it was intended. And social media can be an incredible support, just like we were talking about earlier with mental health, people with mental health issues. Um, using technology and using social media by our teens in respectful and responsible ways allows them to connect and forge relationships and friendships. So it can be a positive thing. But again, if they're in control of it and not the other way around where it controls them. You you had a lovely quote there, which is you're much less likely to post a nude Instagram picture in the kitchen while stood, while stood there with your family. So true. I can't remember that I have never posted a nude Instagram <laughs> picture, so I don't know where you're most likely to do it, but I can imagine. I can imagine that that would be true. Um, I don't think we can talk about this topic without talking about sexuality, body image, and pornography. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's possible to. Um, so let's start with let's start with body autonomy. Now, I, I I am only a mother of a girl, so I have limited perspective on how this applies how this applies to boys. I know for me, one of the questions that I am asking myself at the moment is if I spend a, the first part of my daughter's life influencing her on body autonomy that you know your body is yours it is a tool that that you use it is your form of expression nobody gets to tell you what to do with it no one gets has ownership of it other than you nobody gets to tell you what to wear you know you this is this is for you and for you only and educating her about the power of that and then that sounds really good in my head until I hit a moment where suddenly she is expressing herself in a way that she feels really good about on social media you know wearing a short skirt posting it for the world to see can you hold both of those spaces as a parent can you say your body is yours your freedom of expression is yours and you can't do that on social media it's not a good idea yeah, look, it really depends on the age of the, the child and when you've had those conversations. I think we do need to, to again, being that, that, that guiding light, give them those tools. We know that body image is a huge issue. Um, there have been numerous studies this year alone that um, where our kids and our teens are identifying their perception of their body as one of the biggest issues that they're, they're facing. And again, it's because of the preponderance of media in general, but particularly uh, social media and how it's permeating their lives at younger and younger ages. The other thing we know is that it is, you mentioned you're not sure if it's just because you're a mother of a girl. We know that this is an issue that begins now in the preschool years. Many of us thought we'd start talking about body image as kids hit adolescence. We now know it's actually in the, the primary years. By about age eight, kids have a concept image of the ideal body um, and they very can quickly ascertain whether they where they fit in that spectrum the other thing we know is that it is affecting boys as much as it is affecting girls many of us had the misguided belief that it was just an issue for, for girls it is an issue for both genders again because of the the saturation um, of the media so I think it's about having those helpful conversations in the beginning then um, you know I think and I'm not at this teenage years 
teenage years yet so it's hard for me to anticipate what I will do but I think we do need to get to a point where we loosen the reins this is what I say to parents you know establish these boundaries have firm limits tighten the reins in the early years because it will pay dividend hopefully by the time they do hit adolescence and youth and then we can loosen the reins and I think as part of our job of loosening the reins is if we have given them enough life experience, we've had enough conversation and dialogue around these issues, we would hope, um, we can't guarantee, nothing in life is guaranteed at all, but we would hope that they will have adopted some of our, our values, they'll have integrated some of our conversations so that will guide their decision. But I don't think um, we can curtail what they end up posting on social media, unfortunately, unless you want to be, you know, the, the parent who is, you know, removing content off social media. And again, that creates a whole raft of other issues. And it goes, it goes back to that, the previous point you made at the very beginning when we started this interview, which is, it's not so much the what, it's not so much the what, it's the, the where and the why. Mm-hmm. So perhaps the conversation is, you know, why, why would you post something like like that? Mm. Not in an accusation way, but but genuinely, you know, mm. what would be the driver behind posting? Mm. Behind posting that is that a healthy state of being that you, that you want to adopt mm. for yourself? Where are you posting it? Is that a a safe place, or does it feel like an unsafe place to you? Yeah, and our teens. This is why social media is so problematic for our teens, is because naturally and again biologically, teens have started to drift away from the family unit, and they start to gravitate more towards their peer group. So peer acceptance, external validation, is really important, and social media caters for that desire so well. You know, I am only as popular as the number of likes. This is why we have teenage girls that will literally remove a photo from social media within about a 15-minute window if it hasn't had sufficient likes, comments or shares. I spoke to a 40-year-old man who said that exact same thing about his own social media channel just yesterday. Yeah. And so, again, knowing how vulnerable our teens are and that this is part of um, why social media can be tricky for them to to navigate if we're not guiding them through, you know, reminding them that you are not, um, you know, your worth is not determined by the number of likes or or comments or the external validation that you get. And that's really hard. I know, you know, again, adults struggle with this um, validation that we often crave as well. Then again, I think understanding, getting our teens and our young people to actually understand how the technology works. Many of these tools use something called intermittent variable rewards. So a bit like poker machines where you, you, you'll get a few losses, but every now and then you get a win. And so these technologies in many instances have been designed strategically to offer those variable rewards. So Instagram, for example, deliberately withhold your likes and comments, knowing that based on your demographics and your profile, that your particular age will post something and then we'll go back in and check for validation within a certain quota of time. Once you go back in the first time, they will withhold or just give you a, a very limited range of likes and comments because they know you're going to go back in within a few minutes just to check and then they release all of them. Why do they do this? Because we get a surge of dopamine, we get a hit of serotonin, all the positive neurotransmitters and it keeps us hooked in this cycle of constantly checking. Now, if we knew those rewards were going to be they weren't intermittent, they were regular rewards, there'd be no enticement for us to to hook us in. So again, getting our kids to understand how this, you know, this is an operating system, there are mechanics built into this, Um, getting them to, you know, talking to them about not 
seeking validation, which is hard. Um, but again, us appreciating that this is just a normal part of the, the teenage years um, is something I think we need to try and figure out as we go. Inclusion and exclusion. You know, I think it was it was hard enough being a teenager and you'd find out mm. at the end, in my case anyway, in the end of the school holiday. So you'd find out three months later that there was a big party in the middle of the school holidays that you weren't invited to. Yeah. That was tough enough. But by that point, it was over and everybody had moved on. To find out in the moment that there's a party going on that you haven't been invited to, there's a social event happening, or at its very worst, that exclusion into the realms of cyberbullying mm. and, and really serious mm. really serious consequences on the emotional and sometimes physical safety of, of our children. How is there a way to prepare your child to you know for the beauty of being of inclusion that the, the digital world allows but also the fact that it means that there are parties that you won't be invited to mm. there are people that will talk to you in a way that isn't either isn't appropriate or isn't healthy and how to draw their own boundaries there Yes, and it's conversation. It is these ongoing conversations, these incidental conversations that we have with our kids. Again, I think from a young age, we know, for example, as we mentioned before, that unfortunate topic of pornography, we know that kids are being exposed from younger and younger ages. And what we know is that parents need to be having ongoing incidental conversations to their kids about what they will do if they are exposed to inappropriate content. And we start talking with pornography about public and private pictures and public and private videos we don't necessarily use the language good and bad because that creates a stigma but the same thing can be done when it comes to you know navigating social networks and social exclusion and inclusion it's about having those ongoing incidental conversations with our kids beforehand because then they'll know how to cope with them it's too hard to have these conversations or it's a lot more difficult I should say to have them retrospectively once your child is in that conundrum and again when they're in that conundrum we are often relying on them coming to us because the social media world is happening on this device it's often hard and this is why parents find identifying cyberbullying so challenging because pinpointing it and distinguishing it from normal childhood or teen behavior is often difficult to do you know some of the key warning signs that kids have, have been exposed to um, cyberbullying or predators is that they retreat or they become um, aggressive or they you know their eating habits change or their, their sleep patterns or their interests change but they can also be very characteristic traits of normal well-functioning adolescence or childhood so this is where it's really tricky and why parents need to be um, having these conversations in a in a constant way so that when our kids do trip up when they hit that turbulence they'll actually come to us but we will have given them some tools to cope with it hopefully um, in advance rather than reactively trying to put out the fire so those triggers are as you said with children behaving in a more withdrawn manner than normal are there any other key triggers to keep an eye on uh, look there are some of the things we talk about with with concerning behaviors is um, looking at any um, changes in their sleep habits um, eating habits these can be and but again they can be normal stages of development uh, looking at um, any changes sudden changes in relationships um Children who are refusing to go to, to school, uh, sudden decline in academic performance. Um, when it comes to problematic use of, of technology, so using it too much, um, we know that um, 
withdrawal symptoms, so kids becoming agitated, frustrated, aggressive when they don't have access to technology can be a concern. The other issue we look for is what we call um, tolerance, so they need more of it to get the same feelings of satiation, etc. But again, those two measures are really hard to sometimes quantify because sometimes, so for example, when it comes to um, withdrawal, often kids are using technology so much these days that they don't actually have opportunities for withdrawal. They're constantly tethered to it. The same thing with tolerance. It's hard to measure if they are constantly you know, using it. So it is hard for, pa- for parents. Um, I think, again, going back to your intuition and knowing that something's not right with your child and trying to probe further. Sometimes it, it's nothing to do with technology. It could just be another you know, issue they're tackling. But I think being observant and, again, being involved is really critical there. Just touching briefly on, I don't know if you can touch on it briefly, it's such a massive topic, on pornography mm. and on handling that, as you said, there's not good and bad pictures, trying to handle that without shame, trying to yes. handle that conversation without shame because, you know, it's going to be there. Mm. You had said that, you know, I, I know you shared a story about the fact that there was an 18-year-old, eight, sorry, eight-year-old boy who was waking up to do homework and access pornography at, at 1 a.m., mm. as his parents discovered. When do you, I mean, you, this is a conversation you would have with both with both genders. Absolutely. When, when do you have that conversation and how do you have it without shame? Yes. So my recommendation is we start the conversation somewhere between six to eight years of age. We don't use the word pornography. We certainly don't show them. I had a parent asking me recently what examples would be age appropriate to show. We don't show any examples. What we start to talk to our kids, one of the, the problems, and there are many problems with pornography, is that it causes a physiological change in the brain. It starts to activate reward pathways. Uh, it causes often a physiological response because in most instances kids or teens have never seen anything like this and what happens is that they do what they normally do if they found a really interesting bug in in the garden two things number one they go and find more of it and number two they share it with their friends because they think they've found something new and interesting so what we need to do from around six or eight is talking talk to our kids about these public and private videos but we want them to distinguish you know how do I know if something's public or private and what we say to our kids is that your body will send your brain a message that something makes you feel unusual you feel a bit strange you feel a bit different this is explaining that physiological surge or interest that they get when you do you just need to come and tell a trusted adult and there's no shame this is a game why we don't use screen time as a punishment tool because if there's any threat that you're going to cut them off from the ipad or ban the the laptop they won't come to us when they see these things so talking to them about when or if you see these things just come and, and talk to me and and we can work through it As we start to approach adolescence and kids are becoming more sexually curious and they're interested in their bodies and in relationships, this is where I think we have to have um, more nuanced conversations because we don't want the guilt. Um, But what we are really concerned about, um, I'm working with some health professionals at the moment who are saying we actually, actually have a national health epidemic amongst young people because of the amount and type of pornography they are watching. Our kids literally carry porn in their pockets now um, and Google is their first sex educator. And again, going back to what we know about the brain, having mirror neurons, we are wired to imitate. 
So our young people are watching pornography. No one wants, I mean, parents don't even want to have the, the birds and the bee talk, let alone the pornography talk. No one is talking about it. It's a taboo topic at schools. In many schools, teachers say it's not my responsibility. Parents feel Ill, ill-informed and awkward about having this conversation. So the problem is our young people are watching this pornography and they think because they have mirror neurons that that is what a loving consensual relationship looks like. So they are imitating what they see in pornography. Girls think that that's what a, a fulfilling sexual relationship looks like. Boys think that that's the level of expectation. So doctors throughout the country are treating increasing numbers of adolescent boys with erectile dysfunction issues because they have become desensitized because of the amount and type of pornography they are watching. They are also, and and this is a confronting topic to talk about, um, but they are treating increasing numbers of young girls. So we're talking here about adolescent and sometimes upper primary school girls who are presenting with very serious anal and genital injuries, again, because they're imitating what they think is the accepted normalised behaviour. So we need to be talking to our kids about what they're watching without the stigma about, you know, and, and shaming them for having sexual feelings, but about often the types of pornography that they are watching, that the types that get the highest ratings and that producers are now saying they need to make because we've developed levels of tolerance in the porn industry, is that we need to be conveying to our kids very clearly that what you see in pornography is not necessarily a depiction of a loving, consensual relationship. And our kids, our teens need that distinction made to them. You know, roughhousing, often women are mistreated. They are used in very aggressive ways. It's often non-consensual. There's this assumption that that's what good, healthy sexual relationships looks like. And we need to you know, dispel that myth and talk to our kids about what real sexual relationships and healthy sexual relationships look like. So that first conversation starts at six to eight between public and private photos. Yep. And then as adolescence kicks in, it moves into what is a healthy sexual relationship? I think so. Are we, as a parent, are you the best person to have that conversation? Or are there other trusted adults that you should bring in at this point? And the reason I ask that is because I was actually asked by a friend recently to have a form of this conversation with her daughter because she was sure that if she brought up the topic, it would be shut down within seconds. I actually believe what your friend has suggested is a, a good decision. And one of the things we know, particularly for adolescent boys, is that they need strong male role models that aren't always necessarily dad especially this is a a big issue if there isn't a male or a father figure present in in the family dynamic but young boys as a rite of passage has always been in many cultures I know for example in aboriginal cultures a rite of passage is that you move from the family unit and you had a group of male role models that walked you through that transition into manhood but this rite of passage seems to have been lost. So one of the things I think we, where we can can have these conversations is in sporting teams. You know, can we have the, the the sport coach talk to our boys? And again, it's in gender specific sports often in a, an age appropriate way with someone that they've built rapport with that isn't mum or dad making me. You know, because they're going to use the word sex and they're going to say penis and they're going to use the word vagina and that's just going to shut me off completely. Um, I think it's a redundant conversation. But if we can have Again, I don't even know if it's the school's responsibility. Many schools, particularly denominational schools, are saying, you know, this is beyond the realm of our comfort and what we want to be seen endorsing. So many schools will shy away from it. But I think having um, key role models or people who are who have a relationship or some sort of rapport with the adolescent would be a much better person to have these. And then that already raises the question of 
choosing early on in your child's life who that person, who you would like that person mm-hmm. to be, someone who's likely to be there in the long haul and actively fostering your child's relationship with that person so you don't find yourself in teenage years going, who do I introduce into this that they mm. feel comfortable enough so mm. it doesn't feel like an awkward segue where mm. you've brought in Uncle Matt to have this conversation and they don't feel particularly comfortable totally. with that person. Yeah. I'm... There's so many places. <laughs> oh, my goodness. There's so there's so much there. I think what I have taken from this part of this conversation specifically is, you know, having those conversations early, having them in an inclusive, mm. shame-absent way, talking about your own experiences, choosing the pieces that are best left to potentially have somebody else come in, someone they respect, to have those, have those conversations – and not not assuming that you know what your child is being um, what your child is looking at mm. because often you don't and hence why you need to have those conversations early i'm going to i'm going to wrap it up there um, if there was and i always ask this this question and i'm so fascinated to hear what you're going to say if there was one thing if i could put in front of you Let's just say every parent, if I could put every parent in front of you who was trying to navigate these digital waters and I gave you five minutes and a microphone, mm. what's the one thing that you'd want them to know? I'd say this for all of us, regardless of whether you're a parent or a non-parent, is that we need to tame technology and not be a slave to the screen. We need to be in control of technology and not the other way where technology controls us. And technology is brilliant. I am a huge advocate. I'm a huge user of technology. I couldn't imagine living my life without it. Um, On my way here to our interview today, I scheduled a lunch order on the device. I managed a play date for this afternoon. So I can't imagine a life without it. So digital abstinence isn't the solution. What we have to to do is to tame what we're doing with it to be in control and I think we were in I think we're in a really unique situation and context at the moment where we became so engrossed so enveloped so wrapped up in the digital world that we sort of got swept up and now I think we're at this really critical juncture where we're actually critically evaluating well hang on am I in control of this or is this you know beep alert and and send me notifications and I start salivating like Pavlov's dogs and I think (laughs) that many of us recognize maybe we haven't developed healthy relationships but through no fault of our own again knowing the way these technologies have been designed not only by technologists and by computer programmers but also by psychologists and neuroscientists to make them captivating and appealing I think we can understand why we you know do our attention does get hijacked by technology and why we're seduced by the screen and we're scrolling at swimming lessons again not not trying to make us feel guilty about it but understanding that that psychological pull um, but then saying well, well I still want to use this I'm not going to move to a place where there's no internet um, how can I be in control of it and I think if we can start to figure that out as adults we can help our kids and our teens to navigate that too because the reality is their world is going to still be screen saturated they need to know how to use it and that whole idea of digital amputation isn't a long-term viable solution um, it's about us trying to figure this out ourselves I think first as adults and then trying to pass on that information um, with our kids that question I think you've just that was a nail a a nail on the head moment for me you know are you are you in control of this technology or is it controlling you and exploring that 
firstly with yourself and then exploring that with your child mm. with your child do you feel like you're in mm. control of this technology or do you feel like it's controlling you mm-hmm. do you feel like mummy or daddy is in control of, of technology or do you feel like it's controlling them mm. as a place to enter into that conversation mm-hmm. that could be a really interesting mm. place to enter in and it might make us really realize <laughs> i feel very uncomfortable yeah. for a little while it's a absolutely to parents uh dr christy goodwin thank you my pleasure Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found tons and tons of useful ideas and insights for growing your own influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your influence journey, you want to take everything you have learned today and just ramp it up a notch, or you just want to learn more about the power of thought leadership when it comes to growing a business, an enterprise, or spreading an idea, there is now also a research paper that you can download from my website, juliemasters.com pop in your email address it is free we will not spam you but it is jam-packed full of all the ideas tools and case studies that I have come across in 10 years of doing this work it's called the influencer code it's not long but it is full of value so download it keep it share it juice it for all it is worth I hope that it makes a massive difference in your career or business Thank you always to our producer, co-founder, and the main brain, I'm not joking, behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an interview.